We'll hear argument now in number 887247, Brian Stewart Langford versus Idaho. Ms. Fisher. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. I represent the petitioner Brian Stewart Langford. I've represented Brian Langford since September 20th, 1984. At the time of my appointment, which was as co-counsel pursuant to a pro se motion to dismiss his trial counsel, Brian Langford stood convicted of two counts of first-degree murder due to his participation in a robbery which resulted in two homicides. One week prior to my appointment, namely September 13, 1984, the state of Idaho, through the prosecuting attorney, had, had filed, pursuant to a court order, a written affirmative pleading that it was not seeking the death penalty. Following the, my appointment, Brian and, and because of the notice filed by the state, Brian Langford faced a maximum penalty at sentencing of life without the possibility of parole. Um, Ms. Fisher, you say, you intimate that uh, if the prosecution doesn't seek the death penalty under Idaho law, then the death penalty cannot be imposed under Idaho law. Is that a correct statement of Idaho law? That is not a correct statement of Idaho law, especially in light of this case. However, uh, it had never occurred before that the state had affirmatively pled uh, a, or taken the death penalty out of the sentencing proceeding, and the court had imposed the death penalty. Why, why would the death penalty — there is an Ohio, Idaho case that neither side cites, by the way, called State versus Rossi, which didn't involve the death penalty, but it involved a case in which the judge imposed a sentence double that that the state had recommended. And it was appealed on the same grounds that you're using today to the Idaho Supreme Court. And the Idaho Supreme Court said, we hold that a trial court is not bound by a sentence recommendation made by the state, even though that recommendation was offered in conjunction with a negotiated plea. Uh, why, why would it be any different for, for the death but penalty? The major difference, of course, or the critical difference, is that this is a death penalty case. In which why we, is that critical? I mean, we, if, we go beyond a mere recommendation of sentence into an affirmative pleading that they're remote, that they're not seeking the death penalty. Obviously, capital cases or capital sentencing proceedings under Idaho law are significantly different than non-capital sentencing proceedings. Not, not insofar as, as whether you're bound by the recommendation of the prosecution is concerned. I mean, I can understand thinking in, in some newly created judicial system that whatever the state recommends is the maximum you could get. But you know in Idaho that that's not the case. This, this case, Idaho Supreme Court case, was before this litigation. It, well, State v. Rossi, if it was before the litigation, there's, there's two things. Number one, uh, if it was entered uh, in accordance to a plea agreement, so he entered a plea of guilty, obviously the court at that time advised the defendant they were not, that he was not bound by the state's recommendation. In this case, the court order requiring the state to uh, advise the defense whether or not they were seeking the death penalty, and if they were seeking the death penalty, to state the specific statutory aggravating factors upon which it relied, uh, was an affirmative notice order, uh, leading the defense, leaving no reason for the court to have ordered that notice unless the state could have Suppose what the court had said was, <clears throat> in a third paragraph of that order, and in the event the state does not uh, adduce further uh, evidence of aggravating factors, the court uh, will, on its own motion, weigh 
the aggravating factors disclosed at trial and determine whether or not the death penalty is appropriate. Could the court have done that? The court could have done that. Had the court so done then that, I it's not a question of whether or not the state uh, can, in effect, waive the death penalty. It's a question of whether or not you had notice. Isn't that true? That's correct, Justice Kennedy. And you, in that respect, I, I'm, I'm concerned that, uh, unless I misread the record, you indicate uh, nothing uh, in your brief and nothing in the trial court to indicate that you would have done anything any differently, nor did you express any surprise or make any objection when the penalty was imposed. But correct me if I'm wrong. Um. In, insofar to the first, quest, first portion of that question, uh, yes, things would have been dif- done differently had I known it was a capital. Well, has there been any showing of that in this record? Your Honor, there's always been argument that I would have treated the case differently because, um, because there were a number of things that would be uh, relevant um, um, and a certain amount of evidence that could have been marshaled, an argument that went directly to the aggravating factors. But I didn't know that the aggravating factors were at issue. Well, you knew those aggravating factors were at issue with reference to the length of the prison sentence. I would assume that if you had something that was important in mitigation, you would have brought it up in, uh, in, in connection with the, 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 uh, sentence, the hearing on the length of the prison sentence. There are a number of items that I would, would have done had I known it was a, a capital sentencing that I would not have done and did not do because it was a non-capital sentencing. Uh, for instance, uh, I certainly would have uh, organized my time, my research, and my energies towards the sentencing proceeding and not gone into the motion for new trial. I would have listened to the tapes. I would have developed the forensic evidence at trial. I would have called a polygrapher who would not have, whose testimony would not have been admissible in a non-capital case, but certainly would have been admissible under the mitigating circumstances in a capital case. Well, you're telling us that now. I'm, I'm not sure that it's an appropriate argument for us to take into account when you uh, did not make that submission at any point below or in your briefs. Well, Ms. Fisher, this was a capital case. I mean, uh, Justice Kennedy asked you a question, I think. I, I, we have always argued that there were things that I would have done, and I have always argued that there were things that I would have done uh, had I known it was a capital case. At the post-conviction hearing, which was the first available time which I could raise the issue of notice, I said I wouldn't have done it this way. As a result, I would have addressed, I would have developed the evidence in conjunction with the statutory aggravating circumstances uh, at uh, at trial, I indicated that the effect of the lack of notice or the affirmative misleading of the notice uh, led me to act differently. At oral argument in the state Supreme Court, I advised the state Supreme Court that there was a n- number of things that I would have done differently. Uh, so this is... Where did you advise that in, in the record? Does it show that you've advised the trial court of that? I believe it's, uh, it's in the... Po- there, there's an excerpt in the JA on the post-conviction proceeding. Well, you can return to it later if yes. you wish. I, I think it's an important the, point. The argument has been made, certainly, as to specific things that I would have, have done differently. Um, they've been argued, have, has not been argued. It's been argued in general terms because no one's ever asked. Uh, when the Idaho Supreme Court asked, I did, in fact, refer to specific things uh, that would have been done differently. 
I don't see how the calligrapher is one of them. Are you saying you couldn't have introduced the calligrapher because it wasn't a capital case? It was a capital case. It was a non-death case. Uh, we w- as far as that rule of evidence is concerned? Yes, Your Honor. In the pre-sentence, uh, let me, it's a polygrapher, I'm sorry, the polygraphist. Uh, the the uh, trial court, I, there was a reference to a polygraph in the pre-sentence investigation. I attempted to correct it because the reference in the pre-sentence investigation was incorrect. Um, and the trial court advised me that it was not admissible. I acquiesced in the fact that uh, the results of the polygraph were not admissible uh, because it was a non-capital proceeding. Had I known it was a capital proceeding, I would not have acquiesced in that inadmissibility. But your objection would have, would have been just as valid whether it was a capital, whether you knew the death sentence was going to be imposed or not, wouldn't it? Well, the, issue, the issues to which the polygraph had been, uh, had been given were specifically in reference to those issues that arise under the statutory aggravating factors. But, but aren't those aggravating factors relevant to the length of the prison sentence as well? The, they are relevant. But the, the admission of the polygraph is not – well, it was my understanding of the law and it was the court's understanding of the law that, in a, that polygraphs were not admissible. Had I known it was a capital sentencing, I would not have agreed to that interpretation of the law because of the broad uh, rulings that this Court has given in that all mitigation evidence can come before the trial court in a capital sentencing hearing. And and you think we would not have applied that rule simply because the State here had said that it was not going to to seek the death penalty? That's correct. Certainly, uh, polygraphs have been held inadmissible in other, in non-capital sentencings. But certainly a, a major difference, or what the defendant was deprived of in this case, was the ability to argue against the appropriateness of the death penalty. For three weeks, we had a number of proceedings in the court, uh, each time the court taking some significant amount of effort to advise the defendant of the matters at risk. For instance, at the uh, motion to dismiss his trial counsel, the the first one where I was appointed as co-counsel, he discussed the risk of getting new counsel at this stage. He does not mention the risk of the death penalty. uh, On March 10th, when we have the hearing to dismiss the the trial counsel, uh, the trial judge goes into significant uh, lengthy colloquy with the defendant to advise him of the risk because I had not read the record, because I had not been present at the prior proceedings, because I was not aware of everything that had taken place. What he doesn't advise the defendant and what he doesn't advise me is that the, the significant risk here is that he's facing the death penalty. At the conclusion of the sentencing hearing, uh, Ms. Fisher, the ju- judge did say that one possible uh, upshot of it would be the death penalty, did he not? At the conclusion, after all of the evidence, all of the argument and evidence was heard in the sentencing, there is a reference by the trial judge to or death. Taken in the context of those proceedings and taken in the context of the affirmative notice otherwise, uh, that comment was not regarded as a statement that he, in fact, was considering the death penalty, but rather as a statement to the prosecution that these had been my options and you come in here and recommend the minimal. But in hindsight, and uh, which, uh, at the don't, don't you think uh, uh, 
that uh, had you to do it again, and perhaps any lawyer exercising reasonable judgment in that situation, when the judge said that, it would, it would have alerted them if they hadn't been alerted before? No question that if I had to do it again, uh, I, it would have alerted me. Whether or not it was reasonable at that time, I believe in the context of the proceedings, the fact that we'd gone three weeks without ever mentioning the death penalty. There are two times prior in the sentencing proceeding where uh, the words or death would have had a significant impact, would certainly have alerted me. Uh, when the prosecutor stands up and says, well, as the court required, we filed a formal pleading, uh, waiving the death penalty. He doesn't say specifically waiving, but saying that we weren't seeking the death penalty. So what are the options left? Indeterminate life or determinate life? Had the judge interjected there or death, that would have alerted me. Had, when I stood up and said to the trial judge, uh, the question that I have to argue here is whether or not this court should impose an indeterminate life or a determinate life on the defendant, had the judge interjected the words, or death, that certainly would have alerted me. Well, it's sometimes counsel don't want to mention the most frightening possibility for their case. They want to get the judge thinking in another direction. It's like a punitive damages case. All you want to talk about is compensatory damage. The less said about punitive, the better, just in order to have a context within which it's difficult for the judge to make that decision. So you could interpret this record as a, as a tactical uh, decision. To, to focus on the determinate sentences uh, simply in order to put the judge's mind uh, in, in, that, in that frame. Well, there's no question that a trial counsel where they've received affirmative notice from the state that they're not seeking death is in a, a dilemma as to whether or not uh, argue against, set up argument as to the potential of the death penalty. And as the case law now uh, is in Idaho because of this case, uh, trial counsel are in that dilemma. Uh, at the time, there was no reason to believe that the death penalty was at issue. Um, <coughs> Say there was no reason. Under Idaho law, there was no reason to believe it was at issue. That's why, correct. why was that? Do you have any case that even suggests that what the prosecutor asks is the upper limit? There has to, there has to be a distinction between a recommendation. I obviously knew that the court was not bound by the recommendation of the state. The state recommended the minimum of 10 years. What Idaho had so far was Osborne 1. Osborne 1 said that uh, in a case where the defendant has, no, has had informal notice of the evidence in aggravation and argument to be had, uh, in a case where he's been present at all the prior proceedings, in a case where the trial court has advised him at the time of his plea of the potential of death penalty, then the requirement of a formal notice that the state is seeking the death penalty is not required. Osborne II, or Gibson then comes down in 1983 and refers to this mandatory procedure and includes the notice that the state is seeking the death penalty. Osborne II then comes down and says in a non-capital sentencing case, even though clearly Osborne was a first-degree murder conviction where the state, I mean, where the court imposed life, they said in a non-capital sentencing, Idaho Code 2515D, which is the necessity of inquiry under the death penalty statute, doesn't apply. So there wasn't any reason to believe in 1984 that if the state didn't seek the death penalty, that the court would impose it sua sponte without any comment as to the possibility or to the fact that he was in fact considering that option. Well, there might not have been a reason to think that a judge would normally do that, but you, you think there was no reason to think that it could be done in law. I mean, I understand how 
you, you, you could reasonably believe the chances were 99 to 1 that the judge would, of course, if the state wasn't seeking death, not impose death. But you're saying that you thought, as a matter of law, that the judge could not do it. Is that what you're saying? Well, well certainly, you know, my, my thoughts are not in the record, but I never contemplated the possibility that the judge could, in fact, pose a death penalty. At the the legal possibility. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Did, did Osmond too uh, advert specifically to Gibson? No, it did not. Uh, Gibson, it, and, and the reference in Gibson is simply a, an outline of the capital, the mandatory capital procedure. Uh, Gibson and Osborne uh, were not interrelated. I, in I take it that outline was not the holding of the case in Gibson, however. Well, they had a number of holdings because there were a number of issues. Uh, and I, I don't believe that the issue was notice in Gibson. Ms. Frischer, when was the first time that the judge made it known that death was still in the case? You mentioned before that he did it. Was that the first time? Assuming that you accept the reference at the conclusion of the sentencing hearing as such notice, that would have been the first time. As taken in the context of proceedings, the first time that the judge made it known was when he actually imposed the death penalty. And that was on October 15, 1984. In this case, there is more than a lack of notice. Assuming that the constructive notice of the uh, statutory requirement or statutory sentencing uh, was, in fact, constructive notice. Once the trial court exercised its discretion, which it clearly had under Idaho sentencing law, to notify or to order notice in regard to the issues to be litigated the, uh, and the subsequent court compliance with the order, it moved beyond a lack of notice into an affirmative misleading situation where the defense detrimentally relied on the fact that the death penalty was not in the case. As a consequence, Brian Lankford stands uh, sentenced to death under procedures that were not reasonably calculated to give him the opportunity to defend against the death penalty. Did Idaho law permit you to move the trial court to reconsider the sentence? The post, because of the, post, uh, the consolidation statute in capital cases, the first opportunity to raise that issue would have been in the, in the post-conviction. Certainly. You mean you, uh, at the time he enters a sentence in the trial court, uh, you, you can't ask him uh, to uh, consider whether or not uh, he might withdraw that determination the motion based on a showing uh, that uh, you were surprised? I, the motion, there is a, a Rule 35 in which you can move to reduce a sentence. Uh, and that, that motion is a, a one-time motion that can be, could have been made at the time of Brian Rankford's sentencing, either uh, within, 40, within the 42 days that you have for an appeal or within 120 days after a mandamus. Consequently, uh, and because of the co- consolidation statute where I was required by law to raise any and all issues within 60 days of the imposition of death, uh, that rule, rule 35 was exercised after the mandamus, if, if you understand what I mean. See, we had, in, in Idaho, we have two, at, at the time of this sentencing, uh, there was an opportunity to raise a motion to reduce a sentence one time. You could only raise it once. Um, we could have raised it either within the initial period of appeal 
or we could raise it within 120 days after the affirmance. Did you raise it? At, did you raise it at one of those two points? Yes, I did, Your Honor. And did you include in at, at which point the 120 day point? 120 days after the affirmance. Yes. Did you include in there an affidavit or a showing or an allegation that you'd been surprised? Yes. And does that contain a, an enumeration of the things you would have done differently? I don't believe that it does, Justice Kennedy. It can, you know, it, it certainly contains uh, the argument that if I had adequate, um, if there was adequate notice through the statute, then Brian Langford, uh, then the flip side of the issue was that uh, I had not presented what needed to be presented in a capital case. Is that motion and, and those proceedings are they in that re- in the record? The, I believe it's a different appeal because we also appealed that that ruling. I'll reserve my remaining time for rebuttal. Very well, Ms. Fisher. Uh, General Echohawk? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I believe what we have here today is a claim by the petitioner that he was totally surprised on the day of sentencing, October 15, 1984, when he received the death penalty. The law clearly states from the very beginning, when he was charged with first-degree murder, that the sentencing court, upon conviction, would have two options, a life or a death sentence. The record is replete with examples of how the defendant was aware that the death penalty was at stake. I believe the claim of the petitioner turns on an unfounded assumption, and that is that in some way the prosecutor by making a recommendation that it did not intend to seek the death penalty, could bind the court in limiting the option that the court could consider at the time of sentencing. And there's virtually no case law or statutory authority to back up that assumption. What what do you make of these? You consider it fair play? Your Honor? Yes or no? I believe that it is. And you believe that if that grew up to be a practice, it would be legitimate all over the country if we say so? Your Honor, I believe that the petitioner and the petitioner's counsel are presumed to know the law. The law speaks for itself. And under Idaho... And doesn't the law speak that prosecutors shall tell the truth? Your Honor? Or would you like to see it be the law? Your Honor, I believe the prosecutor gave a recommendation in good conscience to the court that the death penalty was not appropriate. But under Idaho law, it's not the prosecutor's job to decide what that ultimate sentence will be. That's reserved to the court. And the court followed the Idaho statutory proceedings very carefully. What you have in this case is a argument on the part of the petitioner that there needed to be some kind of extraordinary warning or signal that the court intended, regardless of the prosecutor's recommendation, to consider 1925-15 and to consider the aggravating factors that are set forth. Well, it's something more than that, isn't it? Uh, The order of May 17th directs that uh, in the event the state 
shall seek the death penalty. Uh, it shall formally file with the court a statement listing the aggravating circumstances. And the defendant shall specify in a concise manner all the mitigating factors. Is, is, would it be a reasonable construction of that order to conclude that when the f- submission has not been made by either counsel, that the court will not consider the death penalty? Is that a reasonable construction? Your Honor, I don't believe it is. And I believe that... So you, you interpret this order as saying that the... Uh, uh, could the state have argued for the death penalty after failing to make this filing? Your Honor, I believe the state would be in a position as it approached to uh, change its recommendation. Despite noncompliance with the court's order of May 17? Well, Your Honor, I think it's important to recognize that the... the order that the court released in May was as a result of a hearing that was held on April 5th. And the counsel has, the petitioner's counsel has argued that this was something that the court uh, pretty much thought up on its own. And the fact is that it came as a request from the defendant. And I think that that... Well, but whatever, it's Genesis, it's a court order. And each side is ordered to set forth the aggravating or mitigating circumstances as the case may be. And when this isn't done, all I'm suggesting is that it might be a reasonable interpretation that the death penalty may not be considered absent these filings. Your Honor, the way that the Idaho capital punishment law is structured, it is very clear that it is the judge who makes that sentence. And the law in Idaho is also very clear that the prosecutor may give a recommendation, but in no way is that binding. And I think that the... Well, suppose the judge said, the death penalty is not going to be part of my consideration. Then he changes his mind after the arguments. Would, would that be proper? Well, that's not the case here, Your Honor. But I, I know that it's not the case. What, what if it were the case? Well, I think ultimately the... I'm, I'm testing whether or not the trial court can take any action which misleads counsel. Well, Your Honor, the point is that uh, the court has the ultimate decision-making authority on the sentence. And if it were to change its mind in some way, give a false signal, and then come back and do, do something else, I believe that the, uh, the counsel would be in a better position to make the argument. But here the court gave a very consistent statement all the way through the proceedings about what it intended to do. Upon the request of the defendant, it's true the court did... Uh, asked the state to identify whether or not it was going to seek the death penalty. But I think that this is not in the joint appendix, but I think that the court ought to look very carefully at the record in the Supreme Court, uh, the transcript from the April 5th proceeding, because in that proceeding, the court makes this statement. After there's some discussion about and recognition that notification by the state is not required as to its position, the court goes on to say, there obviously needs to be inquiry pursuant to 1925-15 as to the statutory aggravating circumstances that may exist, regardless of whether or not the state intends to pursue the death penalty. I think the court made it pretty clear in that statement that, yes, we're going to identify what the prosecutor's position is, but the court has an independent uh, authority here and the sentencing structure and the court is going to consider 1925-15 regardless of what the state's position may be. That was an opinion of the Supreme Court of Idaho you were quoting from? 
No, Mr. Chief Justice, that was an actual proceeding uh, where the... This was an arraignment, wasn't it? Uh, Your Honor, this, this uh, language that I quote comes out of a, a it, this was after conviction, just five days after the conviction. In this case. Yes, in this case, Mr. Longkeek, the trial counsel for, for Brian Langford was present. The prosecutor was present. They were discussing when to set the sentencing date. The defendant's counsel asked for the state to disclose what its position would be. The court says, yes, I'll do that, but... You have to understand, obviously, there needs to be an inquiry into 1925-15, and regardless of whether the, the state... Was the counsel for the defendant uh, uh, counsel at that time? Your Honor, uh, Ms. Fisher was not counsel... Was she in the room when this happened? She did not enter the case... Was the record of this colloquy that you described provided to her at any time? Your Honor, Ms. Fisher had available to her, under court order, the services of the trial attorney right up to... So she could have asked him about it and found out by making the appropriate inquiry, but she didn't hear it said herself. No, Your Honor. The defendant was personally present. And that's what you regard on as the best example of advance notice. Your Honor, I think that... The, the, the transcript, there was a transcript of that hearing. That's the transcript think, of the April I think we have it in the record hearing. here, too. And he could have told her, I suppose he could have volunteered to her. Now, bear in mind that the death penalty is at issue here because the judge told me that. And I was counsel for the defendant at the time he told me. He could have volunteered that to her, I assume. Your Honor. Probably should have if, uh, if there was any doubt about that. He point. could have uh, volunteered that information. Uh, counsel this also was before the order requiring the prosecutor to take a position, wasn't it? Yes, Your Honor. Yeah. That's, tr- that's correct. May I ask something? Uh, reading the trial judge's uh, findings, is it clear from the record whether the judge thought this defendant or this defendant's brother did the actual killing? Well, Your Honor, I, I believe that uh, the evidence showed that the person that actually struck the deadly blow was Mark Langford, the brother of the petitioner. The brother. But can you tell that from the judge's findings? The judge's findings are really quite ambiguous on, on who did the actual killing, as I read them. Your, Your Honor, I believe that the judge, judge's findings would have identified that this was a common scheme to commit No, but my question act. is, can you tell from the judge's findings which person the judge thought actually uh, did the killing? Your Honor, I believe that the judge thought that the person that actually delivered the deadly blow was Mark Langford, but... How do, you, how do we know that? How do we know that? His findings don't reveal that, do they? Well, Your Honor... And isn't it a fact that had he had the results of the polygraph examination, which apparently were part of the attempt to work out a plea bargain before this, this defendant testified at his brother's trial, those would have shown who did the actual killing? Your Honor, I don't think it was in dispute as to who struck the deadly blow, but the, the, the courts made a finding that this defendant intended to kill. But there is no, but you cannot tell from the judge's findings who did the actual killing, can you? Your Honor, I'd have to go back and read that specifically to see if there's, you know, one comment. But with regard to the, to the uh, polygraph that counsel for petitioner says would, be, would have been helpful, Actually, I believe that that was more damaging than helpful. Um, there were essentially ten questions that were asked through two polygraph examinations, and six of those, the defendant was found to be deceptive. 
That's right. But on the questions that related to who did the killing and which were the basis for the prosecutor being willing to make a plea bargain, he was truthful on those. Is that not right? Your Honor, um, where he failed is where he identified that uh, he did not know that these people were going to be killed and that uh, where he passed was where he identified that his brother was the one that actually struck the blow. Which is the fact that was material to the prosecution when it negotiated when it negotiated a plea bargain that the judge refused? Your Honor, clearly the prosecutor thought that Brian Langford was the less culpable of the two. I think it's important when we talk about what the judge was thinking to recognize that in Idaho there is a very specific procedure that can be followed. If you want to um, bind the judge to a sentencing alternative, that's what we call Rule 11. And if uh, counsel may have had a pretty good argument to make if at the time that she handled the sentencing proceeding she walked into the courtroom with a Rule 11 uh, plea in hand that really does bind the judge. But in this case, that was not the situation. The judge, uh, in fact, at the close of the sentencing argument, noted that the death penalty was an option and that uh, he was rejecting the prosecutor's recommendation. Now, at that point, the defense attorney objects because she said, I want him to be sentenced today. If she really thought that it was a surprise, believe me, I believe she would have gone right through the ceiling and asked for more time, asked for a, a rehearing, reconsideration. That just didn't happen. I believe that it was really a matter of trial strategy on her part. And uh, looking at the facts in this case, the defendant was benefiting by that prosecutor's recommendation rather, rather than being harmed. The benefit came because the prosecutor was very articulate in closing argument at sentencing, identifying that in his opinion, the uh, defendant was the less culpable. But the judge is the one that has to make that ultimate decision. And under Idaho law, he's required to follow a step-by-step -step procedure. He's required to hold a sentencing hearing. He's required to review the evidence that is submitted at trial. He had five days' worth of evidence that he had to consider. And he is also required to consider whatever mitigation or aggravation factors are presented. In this case, the state presented no additional aggravating factors. The defendant calls seven mitigating witnesses. And I assert, Your Honors, that the evidence that came in at sentencing hearing applies whether you're talking about a life term with no possibility of parole or a death sentence. The information that was presented to the court is mitigating, period. And the court considered that and made written findings. I think that... Um, what significance, if any, should we put in the language quoted on page 45 of the opposing brief from Gibson, which refers to the procedures uh, which they're claiming should have been followed as being mandated in potential death penalty cases? Justice Souter, I believe that uh, this court should place no significant uh, significance to that language because that was what, not an issue. I, what language we're talking about, please? Where would I find this language? 
I'm sorry. I was quoting from page 45 of the uh, the opposing brief. The uh, there's a quotation from Gibson. The the red Pardon brief. Me. No, the, the the blue brief. Thank you, Your Honor. That was not the issue in the case. The court simply made the statement that the mandated provisions under Idaho law were followed, and then went down and listed several that had been um, several of the procedures that had been. <laughs> followed by the court, including notification. But there's no place in the Idaho statute or in no other, in no other case where it's identified that the state is required to give that not notification. In fact, the first major Supreme Court case in Idaho to interpret 1925-15 State versus Osborne held just the opposite, where the prosecutor uh, did not make a recommendation for death. The death penalty was imposed and the court considered whether or not there was some requirement that the state should notify the defendant, and the court found that there was no requirement. General Echohawk, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. That language is not is not inconsistent with with anything that, that you've told us anyway, right? It, it, if that language is is accepted as entirely true, all it proves is that the state must make known its, its intent to seek the death penalty or not. That's correct. It doesn't at all say that once the state does make known its intent not to seek the death penalty, the death penalty can't be imposed. So that was complied with here anyway, even if you accept that language as supplementing the statute. It, it, ha it was complied with in this case, wasn't it? Yes, Your Honor. And I believe that the way that the Idaho sentencing laws for capital offenses are structured, the judge is placed in a position to make that decision to avoid inconsistencies and to allow a prosecutor to bind the judge is is a way that will probably lead to more inconsistencies in terms of what is handed down. The judge is the ultimate authority. The judge has given ten aggravating factors that you have to examine, you have to find at least one of those to be present before the court can impose a death penalty, and that that aggravating factor or factors, whichever are found, have to be weighed with the mitigating circumstances. But ju just to be clear on the point, what you, in a, what you are saying, in effect, is that when the court referred to a potential death penalty case, it was referring to a case in which at any time uh, uh, capital sentencing was a possibility. It was not referring to these as conditions upon which a capital sentence uh, as necessary conditions upon which a capital sentence could be imposed. In other words, it was stating a description of a generic kind of case rather than setting out a procedural condition. Is that what you're telling us? Well, Your Honor, I believe that what a judge has to do is examine independently. No, I realize that. I'm just going back to the, to the colloquy that you and I and, and Justice Scalia and I have had about the language from Gibson. And, and I just want to get clear on this, that when Gibson refers to a potential death penalty case, you, in effect, are telling us that what Gibson is referring to is a case in which at any time the death penalty might have been or might indeed be a possibility. But it is not, the court was not by that language, referring uh, to the preceding procedures as conditions which must be satisfied before a death penalty can be imposed. Isn't that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying, Your Honor. Your Honor, I believe that um, it's important to note that at no time has the defendant in this case made any 
factual uh, representation about what evidence would be available to specifically address the death penalty that was not presented to the court. Your opponent did that today. She said that she would have argued that even though polygraph testimony is not admissible in a normal trial or a normal sentencing hearing, she would have argued in view of our Lockett case and the requirement of all mitigating circumstances being admissible, she would have argued that under that rule it was admissible. She might not have prevailed, but she said she would have made that argument. Well, Your Honor, I think the polygraph evidence would have presented uh, an issue for the trial court to consider, but the fact is that she did not offer that proof. Well, right, and she said the reason she didn't do it is because she thought it was inadmissible because she didn't think it was a death case, whereas she would have made the different argument had she realized it was a death case. And you say, basically, well, she should have realized it. That's what it kind of boils down to, to that, I think. And, Your Honor, I believe that my assertion today is that uh, that ev- evidence uh, would have made, she's made no showing that the evidence, uh, the outcome would be any different from anything that she could have produced. Well, it's pretty hard for her to make that showing. If the judge, <laughs> how does she know what the judge would have done? But it does seem to me rather strange that the judge, on the very point that would have been involved in that testimony, makes such an ambiguous statement of findings in his explanation of the death sentence. Well, is your opponent saying that this wasn't a death case? I mean, if, if it wasn't, if, if the effect of not giving the, the notice that death was still at issue was not to make it a death case, then presumably she didn't even think that you had to go through the, the separate sentencing phase at all. Was there any indication of that in the record? Well, Your Honor, I think she was clearly... I, I didn't know that we were arguing about whether this was a death case or not. Is that, is that really what's, what's at issue? Your Honor, I understand that the petitioner's argument it is, is that once prosecutor made the recommendation that it became a non-death case, that the prosecutor could bind the court unless the court came out and made some specific statement that I'm going to ignore what the prosecutor's recommendation is. I didn't understand her brief to say that. I didn't understand her brief to say that. Because if that is the case, then, then there would follow the rule about the polygraph would change, and, but there would also follow a lot of other, of other things, including the fact that you wouldn't have to have a special separate sentencing hearing anyway. Is that true? I thought you had a separate sentencing hearing anyway. Even if it had not been a, a death in the, in the wind, there still would have had to have been a separate sentencing hearing, wouldn't there? Your Honor, death was in the wind no, but even if it all the way been, through. Had it not been, just for, to take her assumption for hypothetical, you still would have had this very same hearing, wouldn't you? Your Honor, the petitioner knew well, no, I under- the Can't you answer judge- my question? Even if the judge had agreed that he was not going to impose the death penalty, would he not have held the same hearing he did in fact hold? Yes. Thank General Echohawk, uh, under Idaho law, if, if there are the, the judge is debating a sentence, there's no, no possibility of death. Does the defendant ordinarily, uh, is the defendant ordinarily allowed to call a number of mitigating circumstance witnesses? Yes, Your Honor. In all cases, uh, whether it be capital or non-capital, the defense can call mitigation witnesses. Yeah, even in a robbery case, say, where the maximum is 20 years? Yes, Your Honor. At a sentencing hearing, the defendant can call witnesses. That's correct, Your Honor. So there was nothing about this hearing, per se, that would indicate that it's a death penalty hearing. The same hearing would have been uh, held, even if it were just a question of uh, what the sentence should be uh, anything from a determinate number of years to life? I think, Your Honor, it was very clear this was a capital sentencing. Well, but so far as all of the evidence and all of the arguments, 
those same evidence and same arguments would routinely have been presented in Idaho, even if death had not been one of the options? Yes, Your Honor. I believe that uh, any the problems that, that counsel for the petitioner basically speak to are greatly related to the fact that she did not become counsel until September 20th. And then after she became co-counsel, moved to discharge a trial counsel. And this is something that the defendant brought upon himself. Uh, the judge made it very clear from the beginning that he would have problems with continuing the hearing because witnesses were under subpoena and uh, the case had already been, had been tried actually back in March. And this was in October sentencing. Uh, I believe that, to a great extent, any problems that exist have to be laid at the doorstep of the defendant himself. Throughout this sentencing proceeding, trial counsel was available. Trial counsel knew and admitted it through testimony given at a motion for new trial that the death penalty was at stake. And, in fact, during one question-and-answer period, when Ms. Fisher questioned Mr. Longteague on the point, um, the comment was made, Mr. Longteague, did you understand that death was a, a possibility here, an option? He said, yes, I read the statute. And that's essentially what our position is, that in reading the statute for first-degree murder and the punishment provisions, it's very clear that death was an option and that a sentencing judge would be called upon to follow the provisions of 1925-15, and the prosecutor could not in any way alter the course of that proceeding by a recommendation. His recommendation was merely advisory. What you have here is a situation where the judge was required also to take the evidence that was produced at trial and apply it to the standards in 1925-15 essentially providing, applying known facts to a known procedure in the capital sentencing process. Thank you very much. Before you sit down, uh, General, uh, when was the uh, um, notice, was the notice given to the court of the, uh, of the sentence that the prosecution was seeking before or after the uh, um, uh, pre-sentence investigation? What is the order of that? Did the pre-sentence investigation precede or follow the uh, prosecution's recommendation? Your Honor, I don't recall the date that the pre-sentence investigation was filed. The, uh, the court... Uh, well, I, well, the order is May 17th at page 22 of the appendix, and it sets the pre-sentence investigation report to be filed on June 14th. There was a subsequent order uh, in early September dealing with notice... Uh, and the prosecutor actually filed his notice or an, of intent not to seek the death penalty. I believe that was on September 13th. So that was after the pre-sentence investigation was completed and filed? Yeah. I think perhaps you have both sides covered, both before and after. Mm -hmm. Let me just ask the same question in another way. Did the pre-sentence uh, investigation report refer to the fact that during the interval, there was a fairly long continuance, as I remember it, that the defendant had testified at his brother's trial pursuant to the prosecution's request. Was that in the pre-sentence report? Your Honor, I believe there was an addendum to the pre-sentence investigation that addressed that. That addressed that 
uh, cooperation. Thank you, General Echo Hawk. Uh, Ms. Fisher, do you have rebuttal? You have nine minutes. <laughs> Thank you, Chief Justice. There's a few matters in which the, the state has spoken to that I'd like to address. Number one is the April 5th hearing in which the defense requested notice. I think if you look at that transcript, there's, there's a couple of things that you have to remember. First, uh, the defense, when they requested it, said uh, whether or not the state seeks the death penalty will materially alter uh, the manner in which we approach this, this case. Secondly, the prosecutor indicated his intent to let the defense know in an early uh, manner so that he, the defense would have plenty of time. Now, the court does, following that colloquy between the, the defense attorney and the tr uh, prosecutor, does say, well, regardless of the notice, there'll have to be an inquiry under 2515. However, I didn't have the transcript. I asked for the transcript. And Mr. Echohawk indicates that Mr. Longteague was available to me. However, the record will, will res, uh, reflect that the trial court had to order Mr. Longteague to stay in the courtroom at my beck and call. The transcript of Mr. Longteague's testimony at post-conviction will reflect that he uh, had one contact with me from the date of my appointment on September 20th. Ms. Fisher, uh, do you think you can just take the case stepping into as counsel as a be kind of a tabula rasa and not be bound by anything that has gone before in the case? Not be bound. No, I do not, Chief Justice. However, uh, what I, what had occurred in the case when I stepped in was an affirmative court-ordered notice that the death penalty wasn't at issue. What had never been litigated. How did you know that? How did I know that? It was on file. It was filed as a formal pleading. And uh, and uh, it was a entered uh, as a re that order was entered, uh, or that letter, was it a letter? Or what? No, it was a formal pleading indicating that yeah. the state was not recommending the death penalty. But that, but that was uh, filed because as a result of this hearing. Well, certainly the hearing. When the, the, judge, the judge says, I don't know whether or not the statute calls for this, and the def defense attorney said, I don't either, but I'm asking for it anyway. Uh, and at that hearing, it, this, this pleading was filed as a result of that hearing. It's reasonable to infer. Uh, the, the hearing takes place on April 5th. Certainly and the court You, you just said that, that that transcript of that hearing was not available to you. That's correct. Well, did you ask for it? Yes, I asked for the, uh, the transcript of the trial and all prior proceedings, and, that, and I was denied. You were denied? Denied. Uh, and what was the ground for the denial? You couldn't even get a transcript of the trial? That... That's correct, Justice White. I asked for the transcript. He said, well, you've got the preliminary hearing transcript, and you've got the transcript of your client, and you have Mr. Longtake, who I'm ordering to be at your beck and call, and that's all you need. Didn't he also say that you had tapes of the hearings? He's, uh, on October 10th, he said, we will try to make available to you tapes of the trial. Those tapes were made available to me on October 11th. Uh, certainly, uh, because I was trying to get ready, because my motion for continuance of the sentencing had been denied, I was trying to get my witnesses ready for the sentencing, and I also had to represent Brian Langford at his co-defendant's motion for new trial, so I was unable to review the tapes. In any case, I take it from what you say that you, would ne you never did get a tape of the hearing that we're discussing here. No, it was only the tape of the, the trial itself. 
Well, where did we ever get a, a transcript of that hearing, do you suppose? The, the transcript was developed uh, during the post-conviction and the appellate process in the Idaho Supreme Court. What do you mean developed? It was well, transcribed? It was typewritten. From, yes. Typewritten from a tape? I have, I have no idea, Justice White. I'm, I'm sure that there was a tape. That tape was not made available to me. The only tapes made available to me were the five-day jury trial. Mr. Echohawk makes um, remarks that my surprise was never litigated. This case has never been litigated on my actual knowledge. Uh, certainly when I filed the post-conviction, the state responded that this was a legal issue. It was a question of whether the statutory notice carried through and uh, negated the effect of any affirmative action by the trial court and the prosecutor. Uh, the Idaho Supreme Court did not go on the issue of actual notice or my actual knowledge. It's never been litigated because it's never been raised. The question is, did the constructive notice of the statute effectively uh, pass through that affirmative trial court's order? Well, no, it, it's not as though anything that was done by the prosecutor or the trial court contradicted the statute. I mean, it, it isn't as though you, you didn't receive any assurance, did you? Affirmative assurance that the death penalty was not at issue? The court order says, it said, well, I, I suppose I took assurance from the court order and from the resulting notice. Uh, certainly the trial it, court the, never said to me... The court order said what? Said that the prosecution was not seeking the death penalty? That's correct. Right. All right. They, they ordered the prosecutor they ordered to the, say... They ordered the prosecutor to say, and then the prosecutor filed a pleading in response to that. That's correct. So the court never said anything about, about uh, whether the death penalty would be sought or not. Right. That's correct. And that's, a, that's the bottom line here. All, we, all that the trial court needed to do, uh, having ordered a notice, which appeared to have, um, which was certainly uh, discretionary and within the power of the court to do under the general sentencing statute, Having ordered it, having received the formal pleading from the state, all the court had to do was somewhere give the defendant an opportunity to know that regardless of the state's order, uh, regardless of the state's filing pursuant to the order, he was still considering the death penalty. The, uh, I suppose that judge, has that, had that judge tried a death case before? Uh, these were his first two death cases. He had not. Well, he, seemed to, he seemed to think that... Uh, it was sort of a strange request. He didn't know whether the statute uh, provided for it, and the, and the defense attorney said he didn't either, but he was still asking for it. Is that the regular procedure? And, or it, it, ha have there been many death cases? And, there, and there, are, there have been a number of first-degree murder cases. Uh, there are currently 19 death, people sentenced to death in Idaho. Um, no, it's not normal procedure for the state to affirmatively order the, I mean, for the court to affirmatively order. It is the court taking the unusual action under its general discretionary power to order such notice as the court may require that changes the whole structure of this case. Had the state um, simply made no recommend or simply said nothing about the death penalty one way or the other, uh, then we'd be in an Osborne situation. Is there something, uh, from something you said before, it sounded as though uh, when you get to the penalty phase of a, in a capital case, uh, is there something like a pretrial order entered? Uh, in, uh, uh, outlining the issues that are to be tried? In a, pen, a death penalty case? Yeah. Not generally. In this case, uh, the, the, the issues were, were defined by the court's order. And then when Which the, order? 
only the, the court order regarding whether the state was seeking the death penalty, if they sought the death penalty, then to, uh, you know, to define the aggra- statutory aggravating factors. The diffic- uh, Ms. Fisher, yes. can I ask you, what you're asking us to, what you think the, the trial court had to say was not merely to clarify for you that legally he could impose the death penalty despite the state's recommendation. But as I understand, as I understand what you're saying, you want him to say not merely I legally can, but I am considering the death penalty. Is you that the death penalty is still still a consideration? Yes, Justice. A live consideration, not just that legally I may do it. You 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 want him to affirmatively let counsel knowing that I'm still thinking about that because I think it's a possibility here. That's what you're asking? Yes. Yes. Why, why does he have to do that? Well, isn't it enough if the law is clear? The law is not clear. It well, was not clear in 1984. Let, let's grant that. Why wouldn't it be enough for him to say, I want you to know, I'm not telling you what I'm thinking about because I haven't thought about it yet. I want to leave my mind open to all the arguments first. But I want you to know that I may legally impose the death penalty. Would that be enough? That would have been enough. Thank you, Ms. Fisher. The case is submitted.